You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Smart Sex, Smart Love, where talking about sex goes beyond the taboos and talking about love goes beyond the honeymoon. I'm Dr. Joe Court. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, and today is about pink therapy for LGBTQ and other sexual health issues. Today, I'll be talking about training therapists beyond cultural competency. Just learning to use the right pronouns isn't enough, our guest says today. He believes we need well-trained therapists who truly understand about the impact of minority stress and microaggressions towards stigmatized groups such as LGBTQ and GSRD people who can work with trauma, build resilience, and adopt a strength-based approach rather than seeing us mad or sad. Today, my guest is Dominic Davis, a psychotherapist and clinical sexologist in the UK. He's a fellow of the National Council of Psychotherapists and also of the National Counseling Society, who is recognized for his work over 40 years in becoming what some have called the father of queer therapy in the UK. He has been shortlisted for a National Diversity Award for his lifetime's work in sexual and mental health. Twenty years ago, he founded an organization called Pink Therapy, which helps LGBTQ clients find culturally competent therapists. He's also developed a two-year international diploma in gender, sexuality, and relationship diversity therapy with students from across Europe, Asia, and as far away as Australia and New Zealand, which is largely studied online. Dominic, welcome. Thank you, Joe. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's so good to have you here. And I thought we could um, maybe even start with unpacking some of these terms I've used because most people won't know. Like I know LGBTQ, but most people uh-huh. don't know what GSRD means in terms of people. Right. Of course. Yeah. It's it's something that we've been using for the last um, for the last few years because we think it's a much more embracing term. We were getting a bit of an alphabet soup with LGBT, IQ, 2Q, 2A, and, and other letters just kept adding on and on and on. And people were struggling to understand what all of that meant. And it, it actually left out a lot of other groups. Um, it left out uh, people who were maybe having a BDSM orientation or lifestyle um, because they didn't fit the LGBT, IQ identity if they, were, if they identified as, as, as heterosexual. So we, we talked about gender uh, and kind of big gender spectrum around that, um, sexuality, relationship diversity. So GSRD is a kind of umbrella term to encompass all of these different identities and marginalized communities, lifestyles and behaviors that, um, that, that means we don't need to add any extra letters, really. I like it. So wait, it's gender, sexuality, relational diversity. Yeah, relationship diversity. Got it. Okay, I love that, right? Because I do uh, notice, and people, it's so funny, I've started to, in my my own talks, it's my uh, stuff is called LGBTQ, but I also say in kinks and fetishes, and I've been uh-huh. sort of judged by other people in the LGBT community asking me, you know, what what the hell are you, you know, adding that to the list for? And I'm like, sure. because it's part of our community, and it's, I mean, it's part of heterosexual community, but I want to teach it too. So I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really important because um, I think in in many ways um, I, I identify as a gay man or as a queer man. I think in many ways um, I and, and many of my brothers have a huge amount of privilege 
uh, and protections in society for from non-discrimination, uh, for equal rights, all kinds of things. But people from some of these other identities do not share those privileges and, and services, and they can't access services. Um, it, the, 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 the LGBT community have built, um, others might be excluded from. So we think it's important to recognize that, um, that, the, that we, you know, we need to be more inclusive. And no one should get left behind, really. I agree. And people are going to listen to this and don't understand when, when you say privilege and privilege has become a bad word lately in our culture. You know, you say it in mainstream places and they're like, oh, yeah, there's that word. But I don't think people understand what it really means. Can you define it? Well, for me, um, there, the, I, I, have, I have many rights um, of, and legal protections for my life as a gay man. If I choose, I could marry a partner. I, I can object to anybody discriminating against me in employment or in goods and services. If I want to register and book into a room in a hotel with, with my partner, then I, that, they can't decline that. Whereas um, if I were to, uh, that, to, and to come out of work, like, I can't be discriminated against. But if I were a heterosexual male submissive um, and was... Um, what wanted to, to and, and that came out at work in some way. I got talking to a colleague, and maybe they outed me to somebody else. I could I could lose my job if I had children. I could lose my access to my children in terms of custody or in terms of right to visitation. Social services could get involved because they might see me as a as, you know as a pervert or as somebody who's just not safe to be around. So I think we have privileges that some other communities. Do not have. So when you say submissive, I want people to understand you mean a kink submissive to a dominant I mean a person. Submissive, yeah, to a dominant. So yes. So people who might live in a in in, in what might have been 1950s style heterosexual marriages, where the wife stayed at home and looked after the kids, and the husband went out and was the breadwinner, and there were very clear hierarchical um, power differences based on gender and roles within that. But he didn't do the cooking, and she didn't do fix the car. Those, those kind of stereotypes might also ex- play out for people in contemporary relationships, in a, in a, perhaps in a similar way or perhaps in a different way, who are involved in um, dominance and submission style relationships. Yes. Now, this is a fascinating thing to listen to you talk because you're in the UK and we're, I'm in the USA. And when you mm-hmm. say that you have those kinds of privileges to not be fired, to be able to go to a hotel and not be discriminated, I'm going to tell you that in 2019, that is not the case here in the USA. You, you, there are, right? There are ordinances, people, some states, some cities, some places you work might have something on state city levels, but at a federal level, we're fucked. And it sounds like we're not fucked in the UK. Is that right? You have federal laws protecting. We have we have federal laws that are or countrywide laws that protect us here. And so we've got yeah, there is. I think in many ways um, we're one of the best places to be in the world in terms of equal rights and protections. Uh, but that doesn't mean that everybody is having a great time here. We're seeing um, increases in violence. Uh, and discrimination in terms of uh, hostile attacks and hate speech amongst our, to, to our communities. We're seeing violent crimes going up um, because people think that um, even though you may have privileges and you may have right, legal rights, it doesn't stop the bullies deciding to take a pop at you. That's right. Yep. And there's been an increase. I've seen that. And when they show it in the media, I love what they do. They just show two men or two women holding hands and that they were a uh, crime was committed to that, toward them just for that. People don't understand. 
yeah, something as simple as holding your partner's hand in public can get you beaten up or killed. And that's that's just not acceptable in this day and age anywhere in the world. But particularly in a country that gives you gives you the right to marry your partner and to and to um, benefit from their pension if they if they died in service and all of these kinds of things. That's just not acceptable. Yeah, you uh, mentioned minority stress, and people won't know what that means either. Can you define that? Well, I would say uh, there's there's been a plenty of research into the LGBT communities. There's been less less good research um, and less expensive and less well validated in some in some areas for for many of the other identities that we've we've touched on. But in terms of LGBT people, we see much higher rates of depression, of anxiety, of substance misuse and alcohol misuse, um, and um, and suicidal ideation and self harm amongst LGBT people. So in amongst lesbians and gay men. Uh, it's the figures for suicide and self-harm are, are running at around 20% of us um, attempt to take our lives or self-harm uh, if, if we're lesbian and gay. It goes up to about 30% if we're bisexual, and it can be 50 to 60% if we're trans or gender non-conforming. And so these figures are really much higher than in the general population. So minority stress is about recognizing that it's not in something intrinsically wrong with you because of your sexuality, your gender, or your gender. It's to do with the society's condemnation and discrimination and hate of you for being who you are. Yes. Um, and you live in a host- we live in a hostile climate um, where you can be bullied, where you can be beaten up, where people can uh, be, be really mean to you. And so that has its impact, that takes its toll on our mental well-being and, and how we feel about ourselves. And that's called minority stress. Absolutely. They did, a, a few years ago, they did a study at Columbia University. They only did it on LGB. I don't know why the T, the trans, wasn't included, but it wasn't. And they found that those who were raised in highly hostile, um, anti-gay rural areas had uh, the lifespan of 12 years less than the rest of the population. Right. It's that's, very... That's, that's very worrying, isn't it? Very really? worrying. And then you um, go ahead. Uh, well, and we know that if, if somebody is coming out to their family and their family accept it well, or somebody is transitioning, we know that their their success rate for their mental well being after transition or after coming out is much higher if they if they have a supportive family. And so we really do need to to be working with helping families understand that their child may not be who they thought they were they were giving birth to or they were raising when they when when they set out with, on that journey and that the child the child may not live up to their expectations or hopes in terms of their sexuality or in terms of their gender identity. Absolutely. I love to ask parents, have you thought about what you're going to say if your child comes out LGBT? And people say, mm-hmm. well, what do you mean? What, what? Why would I think that? And I always say, because you might be raising a child who's LGBT and be sensitive to those issues so you're not making mistakes with a child and saying things that could be harmful for them later. Very important, yeah. What about you? Talk about microaggressions. You and I both know what that means, but the our uh, okay. listeners. Yeah, that's that's that that they're, they're less they're much less at a much lower level than the kind of beating up. They are the little sneers and and cuts and uh, snarls that you might get when you're engaging, for example, in public displays of affection. So if I choose to hold my partner's hand as I walk down the street, I'm going to get looked at. That's going to be seen, and people will often not smile and feel pleased to see that they'll they'll give a little snarl or they 
or they may be just a little hiss of clear as, as you're walking by them. And those like tarts and those kind of discriminatory looks are known as microaggressions. And we're much more frequently exposed to them if we're out about our identity. Um, and, and trans people, particularly some trans women, can't hide the fact that, they, that, that, that they've transitioned uh, later in life. And so they are more exposed to these microaggressions all the time, every time they, they, they set their set foot outside the house. And they take their toll hugely on people's well-being um, and mental health. Yeah, thank you for um, explaining that because people hear that they're like, well, what does that mean? And I always tell them there's mm -hmm. other examples too, like it's okay that you're a gay and lesbian couple as long as you act like a straight couple. It's okay that mm. you're trans or non-gender conforming as long as you act like the gender you're saying you're going to be you, that you say you are, whatever that means. Or mm. the whole idea of going up to trans people, people still do this. What's going on down there? You know, what have you had sure. your surgery? It's so, I, and when I do my talks, I actually say to, uh, what look like heterosexual cisgender people and I'll say, um, it's like me going up to you saying, what's going on down there? You know, what's your vulva look like? And sir, what does your dick mm. look like? Are you a shower? Are you a grower? People start laughing. I'm like, wouldn't you think you would say, get the fuck away from me? You know, back off. But we feel totally, um, okay to do that to people who are trans. Right, right. And it's it's just so intrusive and wrong. Um, we think that somebody else is, you know, we have a right to know that stuff about people. And it's hugely personal. Um, and, and it's private. Um, we don't, we wouldn't, we would be very upset if somebody was asking to see the genitals of our, of our offspring, and yet, of our children, and yet, um, they point. feel like it's, they've got a, every right to ask about the genitals of um, somebody that they've barely even met. Or even somebody that they're friends with, or that they're becoming friends with. Yes, it's just an it's just an inappropriate question. What would you say? Because I mean, you've been doing this for forty years. Um, what would you say? Can you take us through some of the changes you've seen in that period and how your own work has developed? Well, I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest things that's happened in that period of time is uh, I was working. I was actually working in the AIDS epidemic and crisis back in the mid eighties. And we were losing many, many, many gay men, as as you were in the in in, in the US. Mm -hmm. uh, that that um, that landscape changed massively once antiretroviral drugs came along in the in the nineties. And so nowadays, an, an HIV diagnosis does not mean death or an early death even. And people are taking medications, and they become undetectable, and therefore unable to transmit the virus to to anybody else. And that's, uh, that's made a huge difference. And, and now we're seeing the development of, uh, of, of a, um, a treatment called PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, it stands for. So you can take a single pill if you're HIV negative and you take that pill every day and it will protect you from having, if you have sex with somebody who is HIV positive and doesn't know their status or isn't undetectable, it will protect you from getting HIV. So that is a huge, uh, a huge advantage and, and change in the landscape. So we're seeing in the UK, certainly in London, we're seeing HIV figures going down by forty percent every year. Um, and we don't have we don't have a completely freely available prep service now. Many many gay men are just buying the stuff online and having it shipped into the country uh, because it's it's a, it's relatively affordable at about thirty pounds a month mm. or less. <clears throat> so that's made a huge difference to the landscape. Um, I was in Liverpool at the weekend, not being shortlisted for my National Diversity Award. And I Liverpool, when I first went there in the very early 80s, 
was when I first met a trans, some transsexual uh, people, and they were staffing the, the helpline um, on a Friday night. And uh, the landscape for trans people has changed dramatically over those 40 years as well. And so now in the UK, you can, uh, you can go through, if you, if you choose to have medical interventions, you can get access to surgeries uh, and, and to hormone tablets. If you choose not to, you can still live in your role or live in a gender non-conforming role. Um, there are, there's much more societal protection and understanding. There are sympathetic documentaries on the TV nowadays compared to how it was previously. Although, even within our own community, there are, um, uh, there are certain sections of the feminist community who, would, uh, who are very hostile to the idea of trans, trans women in particular. Um, joining within, joining up within their spaces. Um, and uh, in the UK, we're, we, we've known them as, as TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, although there's nothing very radical about their branch of feminism. Um, and so it can be quite a hostile environment for trans people uh, socially. Uh, but there are, so we've got greater visibility and many kids are coming out and uh, as gender non-conforming or, or non-binary or as trans at uh, a much earlier age nowadays and being understood and accepted and able to uh, make a social transition at school and, and go by a different name or be supported by their parents and by the schools in, in just giving them some time to see if that, if that identity sticks for them and, and persists in, into their adolescence. You know, you and I are, I think we're close to the same age. I've worked 35 years. You've worked 40 years in this field. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think we'd ever see, you know, the acceptance the way we are of trans? I mean, I think it's incredible. Um, I think it's amazing. Um, as somebody who's from outside of that community, I think it's incredible. Although I think uh, if I were a young trans person coming out, I might, I might, I might be feeling very anxious about my future. Um, Still, I think, it, because there is still quite a lot of misunderstanding and fear and hostile news reports. Our media in this country have been very hostile at, at scaring people and, and spreading quite vicious lies about, about what goes on for trans people and saying that the parents are abusing their children by not allowing them to be gay, by forcing them to be trans. It's kind of all kinds of ridiculous ideas yeah. that they're performing genital surgeries on teenagers, which is absolutely not true. Um, and so it's not the parents performing them, but the, the children children and adolescents cannot have genital surgeries or even access to cross-gender hormones that will, will start masculinizing or feminizing them. They don't happen until at least 16 or 18 for the surgeries. So the, the journalists are spinning lies and whipping up a lot of um, misconceptions and hostility rather than helping these, helping these young kids feel okay about themselves. And so no wonder we've got self-harm and, and, and uh, suicide attempts at 50 or 60% amongst those, those kids, because it's just, it's a really hostile environment for them. Yeah, and people, not so... you would choose, is it? No, not, not at all. And uh, so what are the rates of suicide? Say that again. 50 to, 50 to 60% of trans and gender non-conforming people... Are, su uh, are, are suicidal or, 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 or self-harming. Yeah, people need to hear that because it's very high. And it's higher than just L uh, for LGB. Is that true or no? Yeah, 20% for LG, uh, LNG and about 30% for bisexuals. 
Um, bisexual women have higher rates than bisexual men for some reason. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. I I feel a little shocked because I feel like here what we I talk about is when you're when a man has one non heterosexual thought he's stigmatized. When a woman has a non heterosexual thought she's fetishized. Given more wiggle room, but so I always think to myself the rate would be higher in my mind of males. But and you're telling me in the UK it's females bisexuals. Well, I, that that's research that I think I read from the states and, and many years ago. It all used to be lumped in together LGB LGB yes. as you said. And it was only in about the last uh, eight years, I guess, that, that people started separating out bisexuals from lesbian and gay and running the studies again and just asking bisexuals their experiences. Um, and, and suddenly we, we see the figures that were really quite high were being inflated by the bisexuals being lumped in with the lesbians and gays. Um, and so that was, that was very salutary, I think, very interesting. And that's kind of what we're seeing in this revolution, I feel like, is happening in our community because it really has been in the forefront, gay, white, male, cisgender, doing all the talking, giving the microphones. I just mm-hmm. found out, I didn't know this, that when HIV and AIDS first hit in the 80s, it was primarily African-American men. But that was not what mm-hmm. you saw on TV. You never, I never yeah. saw that. I only saw cisge- uh, cisgender um, gay males do, uh, getting well, that's, that's- that's another example of our privilege, isn't it? And our power, because we've been raised as white men. We have a lot of privilege and power in society. We've, we've been told that we're, that we're there to be the leaders. And our parents support that idea. And, and it's very, it's, so we did do an amazing job at getting services off the ground and arguing for money and for, um, for, for funds for setting up charities around HIV, making sure that AIDS care got on the agenda. That was great. But the figures for um, black African people, um, American African people, have always been much higher um, in, in, in the U.S. And uh, that's, that, but that becomes ignored, really. And still access to PrEP and HIV figures, I think, are still rising within those communities in the, in the U.S. And, and health care is, 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 is poorer. Agreed. And can you tell us a little bit about your online international training program so people know what to expect if they were to want to join that? Oh, wow. That, thank you. Yes. Well, we've been running, we, we run, a, people can choose to do, do a one-year program if they're already a qualified counselor or psychotherapist or psychologist. Um, and we begin it with a, a week-long residential intensive at a, at, at a university in, in the UK where people can just live together and engage in some very deep exploration of their own histories around their genders and their sexualities and exploration uh, and kind of get to know each other really well and explore those those journeys because clients are going to come through the door coming with all kinds of backgrounds and experiences uh, and that they may be very different to their own and so we want people to be aware of what is their own history and what is their stuff that's maybe different or similar to their clients so that they don't start confusing their client material with their own lives and and, and um, get it, get it, get in a bit of a muddle there. So we have a week-long intensive, and then people go home wherever they are in the world, and they study the rest of it online. And so we have video lectures and guided reading. We have webinars, live webinars, where they can meet with one of the faculty and discuss the assignments that they've been submitted and the reading that they've been doing. And then we have them in small case discussion groups where they're talking about clients that they're working with. And and, dis- and and helping each other understand um, and view the material that the client's presenting from a range of different perspectives 
and then tutorials with the with the faculty on about some of that with some of our experienced faculty. So it's a it's a it's a one year program that then if they they study eight modules there and then if they decide that they want to go on further and become more specialist, then they can do the second year and, and leave with a diploma. And in that second year we've got some of the more kind of complex subjects uh, and some of the more kind of deeper, sexier subjects. That's great. It's great you do that with all your knowledge. You put together a great program, I know, and I hear a lot of good things about it. What would you say, Dominic, because we have to come to an end. Um, how can people find you, links, future product, pro- projects? What's going on? Okay. Well, um, we have a training site, which is pinktherapy.org. And um, the, in addition to the one-year and two-year programs, we've also got short study modules for all of the theory modules that occur in our in our um, two-year program can stand alone. So people could just, if they have a particular issue that they wanted to learn more about, they could just buy in a, a module and study that at home and submit an assignment if they wanted to. So that's at pinktherapy.org. And then online at pinktherapy.com, we've got a directory of therapists who work with GSRD clients, mostly in the UK, but we've got some international people listed in there as well because people are looking for culturally sensitive or culturally competent um, therapists, um, and some and some other bits and pieces of information. And then we're on Facebook under Pink Therapy and a closed Facebook group for therapists, and uh, um, Twitter at Pink Therapy UK. So there's, there's lots of ways in which we're in the social media. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate you coming on. I knew that we could talk about some things that are different there than are different in the UK than here, and your wise experience from all those years, and uh, it's just been a pleasure getting to know you over the years, and thanks for being on my podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Joe. It's really lovely to connect with you again. You too. Thank you, Dominic. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Smart Sex, Smart Love. I'm Dr. Joe Court, and you can find me on joecourt.com. That's J-O-E-K-O-R-T.com. See you next time.